It's time for Security Now with Steve Gibson. Microsoft gets in trouble because of Canadian spam. Apple updates iOS. Greenpeace flies a blimp. The future smells like your cat. And Steve Gibson takes you through cloud storage. Security Now is next. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now, episode 462, recorded July 1st, 2014. Cloud Storage Solutions. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers your privacy and security online with the one, the only, ladies and gentlemen, it's Mr. Steve Gibson. Now, I've been told that you are the one, the person who knows everything about security, what we need to keep ourselves safe in a digital age. Steve Gibson joining me. Thank you. I'm Father Robert Palliser, the digital Jesuit in for Leo Laporte. Steve, what are we going to cover this week? Okay. Well, first, I should say that nobody who actually knows about security would ever claim to know everything about security. It, the nature of security is to acknowledge that it's bigger than we are. Uh, but it's it's the fact that it's bigger than we are, which makes this, I think, an interesting podcast. When you know, we we've often talk about it. How when Leo suggested this to me almost ten years ago, we're coming up on our our at the on the end of ten or the I guess the yeah the end of the tenth year. Um, I just didn't think we were going to have enough stuff to talk about. It's like, wait a minute, every week we're going to talk about security, and lo and behold, here we are with like. The podcast started off going to be 30 minutes, and it's often two hours. So, yes, we're we're not running shy of anything to talk about. It's we amazing, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, people, yeah. Yeah, shouldn't you be done with security by now? Talking for 10 years, <laughs> that haven't we covered everything that's possible to go wrong with security? Yes, and arguably it's getting worse, not better. So, you know, as as the technology spreads, now we have we, – we've introduced this whole nother – real, you know, angst-inducing category, uh, sort of gen- generally known as the Internet of Things, which means that, you know, our household thermostats, our refrigerators, our toaster ovens, all this stuff is going to get connected. And already we're seeing security problems with those devices. So, yeah, this is not going to end <laughs> well uh, and nor anytime soon. So our, our main topic this week is the introduction of a series that we're going to start to sort of recover the whole domain of secure cloud storage solutions. We did this years ago in what was sort of a famous set of podcasts where, uh, and that may have been where I coined the TNO acronym, Trust No One, because, you know, the notion is there, there is absolutely technology available which gives us complete control over the the random noise that we send up to the cloud so that we're not needing to trust the people who are storing our data for us. We're only asking them to store it. And, um, and of course, this was years before all the NSA revel- revelations and, and all of that. So because it's been years, because... The variations on solutions have exploded. Pricing has come down. 
um, there met, there's like been an explosion of offerings. I, I, it's been on my list of things to get to for some time. So, so this we're not going to start talking about specifics yet, but I want to introduce the topic, talk about the goal of this project. I've created a publicly accessible spreadsheet where all of the specifics will be maintained, so anyone can go there and browse there, and we'll and it will flesh it out over time as we sort of march through the solutions and and cover that. But that's what we'll talk about after we talk about the news. And there was lots going on this this week. Um, uh, Microsoft surprised us by saying they were going to stop sending security announcements through email. Then they changed their mind. Uh, we've got a new iOS and Mac OS X update. Uh, PayPal had sort of a famous security misfire. Uh, people have been asking me about Proton Mail, which was the target of PayPal's misfire. So we'll take this opportunity to talk about Proton Mail briefly. Uh, Greenpeace and the EFF had an interesting use of uh, of uh, lighter than air aircraft. Um, Facebook got in the news, unfortunately, for some social engineering mischief. Uh, and boy, there was an amazing announcement from IBM Security with a very disturbing snippet of source code from the Android project and a bunch more stuff. Yeah, that's that's pretty ambitious. Do you think we can actually get through that an hour and a half, two hours? <laughs> well, we'll run full speed. Yeah, I mean, just the EFF flying a blimp over the NSA uh, data center in Utah alone, I think you oh, could turn an entire show to. beautiful, beautiful photos. Really? Too. I know, right? I mean, uh, that, that was the thing. When I first saw that, I thought it was just a publicity stunt. It was just, okay, yes, I get it. You have a sign saying they're spying on you down here. But the photos they actually took, are are amazing. They're they're so much better than the, the the released photos of the data center. It actually gives you a little a little insight into what might actually be in the building. Yeah, and you know, I stared at them for a while. I mean, they make great wallpaper if somebody's like into an NSA wallpaper. Um, but you know, there are not many cars around, so I've not been tracking yet. I don't think it's up and functional yet. I think it's it looks like the facility has been built. And there's vehicles sort of staged around in different strategic locations. You can, it's like stare at the fence and there's like little pods every 10 feet. And it's like, ooh, I wonder what those do. So, so yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely a, an interesting uh, photo that was taken. But yeah, it makes great wallpaper and, and wow, quite a facility as, as we've discussed south of, uh, south of, I can't think, it's in south of, What's the big town? Utah? Uh, so, uh, Salt Lake? Salt Lake? I, I think, uh, Salt Lake City. South of Salt Lake City. Right. Yeah. You know, one of the things that we um, we actually covered on uh, uh, This Week in Enterprise Tech when we were talking about the data center in Utah is they were having issues bringing the data center up because they were pumping so much power into that building. They were getting arcs. They were getting lightning in the building, jumping from rack to rack to rack. And every time it did that, it would destroy a few ten thousand dollars worth of uh, of storage devices. So oh, and yeah. some precious data. Oh my god. Oh, I, I feel really <laughs> bad about that. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I I know how bad it is when I lose a hard drive or two, and you know the NSA losing terabytes of of data at a time. It's it's it just breaks the heart. Well, as a as a percentage of what's there, eh, they probably wouldn't even miss it. So. Yeah, and and that's that's actually the alarming part. The alarming part is that the the dri the drives that they were replacing they were replacing while continuing to to run the data center, at least in its early stages. 
Uh, wow. the, the other thing I remember about this is how much power and water it drew in. They, the NSA actually tried to classify how much water the data center needed for cooling and how much power it was drawing in over the over the grid uh, under the, the National Security Act. They were saying, look, you, you can't tell them how much cooling we're using because, well, then they can figure out exactly what they're running and they'll know our capabilities. It's Right. It's it's strange. Once you once you get into that morass of national national security, it's amazing how fast it grows into. Oh, we can't tell you that. We can't tell you this. And oh, and by the way, uh, we're going to need a, a four hundred mile cordon around the building because anyone could fly a blimp over the top of us, and suddenly it's no longer a secret. Well, it's interesting too. You can see the the power center in the in those pictures in the in the back right of the photos is a is a whole power substation there just for the purpose of servicing that center so you know we i'm sure the experts are able to take a yep there it is back there i'm sure experts are able to take a look at it and and you know gauge from that so it is it's pretty amazing what they i mean look at yeah. this this is an entire electrical substation and all it does is run servers right and it's just for this one installation so uh, you you can guess what what might be in there. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So um, on Friday, I got this weird email. Microsoft, because I subscribe to several of the Microsoft uh, security announcement feeds. They'll they'll like send an email out the week before the second Tuesday, which would be today, because our second Tuesday of July will be next Tuesday. And they, they sort of give you a generic, these are the sorts of things that are going to be there. I don't, I don't know why they do it, but because they must, I mean, they obviously know enough to send that email to tell us what they're going to do, but they don't actually announce until they're, they're ready to go. Um, anyway, this email said that they were going to cease sending e- these security update announcement email due to changes in government regulations didn't say what regulations or what government just changes in government regulations and and then it came out a couple days later that this was their response to the July 1st which was yesterday uh, it's, co- it's called uh, CASL. That's the Canadian anti-spam law. Oh, it's something Canada. that happened. Yeah, it, it's something that happened on January first and had a six-month grace period. So that ended at the end of June, and and I was really curious about this. So I I spent some time looking at what this legislation says, and I mean it is onerous if Microsoft were subject to it. And what's bizarre is that there are, first of all, Microsoft worked closely with Canada during the preparation of this legislation. So this didn't catch Microsoft off guard. Microsoft was sending affirmative sort of resubscription email already prior to this. And so so it's like they misfired and in fact microsoft has subsequently said uh, oops never mind we will continue sending email starting with next month so i think we maybe we're going to miss july's mail but then we ought to start getting it again in august but but what this what, what this law states is that after july 1st you are no longer able 
and 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 this this um, impacts Canada resident companies and Canadian recipients of email. So you know, Microsoft in Redmond is impacted if they're sending security announcements into to, to Canadian citizens, except that they're not. But w- w- which we'll talk about in a second. But anyway, so so the law, I mean, is it's got some teeth. And you can't even ask people after July 1st if they want to stay on your mailing list. That's what the six months was for. You had to ask before July 1st. Afterwards, it becomes a crime to, to, to because I guess the, the, the presumption is if this isn't written really, really carefully and tightly, then the spammers will just ignore the law. And of course, the real problem is the spammers do ignore the law. And this is, you know, I mean, this has been the problem we faced before is it'll be to to whatever degree this causes problems for legitimate companies. This is a problem for them. Um, but the spammers will continue to spam, even though it's, you know, anti-spam. So Brian Krebs was following this. And he, uh, in fact, Brian has a new book out uh, specifically about spam. Um, I've not had a chance to read it yet, but but as a consequence, he's really up on this. And he quotes a uh, an, an executive director uh, named Neil Schwartzman, who's he's, he's the executive director of the Coalition Against Unsolicited Commercial Email, C-A-U-C-E, who said... The CASL, which is this new Canadian legislation, contains carve-outs for warranty and product safety and security alerts that would more than adequately exempt the Microsoft missives, wrote Neil, from the regulation. And Brian wrote, indeed, an exception in the law says it does not apply to commercial electronic messages that solely provide, quote, warranty information product recall information or safety or security information about a product, goods, or a service that the person to whom the, the message is sent uses, has used, or has purchased. And so then, quoting uh, Schwartzman again, he said, quote, I am at a complete and total loss to understand how the people in Redmond made such an apparently panic decision noting that Microsoft was closely involved in the discussions in the Canadian Parliament over the bill's trajectory and content. And finally, said uh, Schwartzman said, this is the first company I know of that's been that dumb. And then, famously, yesterday afternoon at 5.40 p.m. Eastern, um, Brian updated his posting, said, in, saying, in an apparent reversal of its decision, Microsoft now says... It will be restarting its security notifications via via email early next month. From a Microsoft spokesman, quote, On June 27, 2014, Microsoft notified customers that we were suspending Microsoft security notifications due to changing government policies concerning the issuance of automated electronic messaging. We have reviewed our processes and we'll resume these security notifications with our monthly advanced notification service. Oh, that's that on July 3rd. So, <laughs> but, you know, the second Tuesday is July 
is July, oh, why on July 3rd? Okay, so maybe we are going to get the July 8th announcement. Because um, somewhere I saw they said next month, but now, you know, now they're saying this month. So, yeah, never mind. You know, if I were to give Microsoft the benefit of the doubt, I, I, would, I would say someone in legal panicked. Someone illegal yeah. saw this and, and didn't know the whole backstory, didn't understand what Microsoft right. had been doing to work with the Canadian government. And they said, well, we don't want this liability. Let's, let's just pull everything. I mean, just until we figure it out, let's just say it doesn't exist anymore. But, right. you know, Steve, it, it kind of strikes me as this is one of those, the rules of unintended consequences. I understand what Canada's trying to do, but legislation against spam has historically not been a win. Right. Right. Yeah. And again, it's, you know, the, the spammers use fake domains. They use other people's machines. They use botnets. I mean, they, they're absolutely lawless. So, again, legislating, I mean, for example, I'm here I am. I'll be releasing Spinrite 6.1 uh, as soon as Squirrel is finished and 6.1 is ready. I need to send email to every Spinrite 6.0 customer, which goes back now a decade because 6.1 or uh, Spinrite 6.0 began shipping in 2004. So I have everyone's email address. I have a commercial relationship with them. It's hard to imagine that anyone who received email from me announcing a free upgrade, like a major benefit to, from 6.0 to 6.1 is going to be upset but, you know, there's all kinds of people and given enough of them, you're going to you're going to find some people who are like, wait a minute. You know, this is spam and I'm in Canada. Stop this. And so I, I need to make sure that I'm you know not crossing the line. So as an example, it, it's much more dangerous for a legitimate, responsible, lawful company than it is for the spammers who are just going to you know ignore this. Well, you know what they've said. Uh, the traditional saying has been, if you outlaw email spam, only spammers will email. Yes. I think that's, that's exactly. probably something with, that they would have said well, if they thought about saying that. And we've, uh, you know, speaking of misfiring, we've often talked about the the problems with PayPal over the years. And they really stuck their foot in it uh, just a couple days ago. Um I'll talk about Proton Mail in a second, and this is a perfect segue for for me doing so. But Proton Mail is a Swiss-based, very interesting-looking, secure email startup that is crowdfunding themselves through Indiegogo, and one of their payment options. Apparently, they 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 use PayPal or a credit card, and they've said that Bitcoin is available, but but from looking at at the dialogue that this all stirred up, apparently they haven't made it easy to use Bitcoin or as easy as they could, or just Bitcoin isn't as easy to use still as it as PayPal is. So, so they blogged, and and so their blog says this morning, which I think is yesterday. I mean, this this all happened. Oh yeah, it, it, it was yesterday. So they said this morning, we received an email, and, and so this is Proton Mail talking. This morning, we received an email and telephone call from PayPal notifying us that our account has been restricted pending further review. At this time, it is not possible for ProtonMail to receive or send funds through PayPal. 
No attempt was made by PayPal to contact us before freezing our account, and no notice was given. Like many others, we've all heard the PayPal horror stories, but didn't actually think it would happen to us on our campaign since PayPal promised very recently to improve their policies. Unfortunately, it seems that these were hollow promises, as Proton Mail is now the latest in a long string of crowdfunding campaigns to be hit with account freezes. For examples, just look here, here, and here, and they provide three links. Now, okay, this was this was all sort of interesting, but the thing that chilled me, the, the thing that really caught my attention is the, the next paragraph, which reads, while the $275,000 Proton Mail has raised in the past two weeks is a large amount, it pales in comparison to many other crowdfunding campaigns that have raised sums in excess of a million dollars, so we can't help but wonder why Proton Mail has singled us out. And here's the, here's the sentence. When we pressed the PayPal representative on the phone for further details, he questioned whether Proton Mail is legal and if we have government approval to encrypt emails. <laughs> so... You know, so so I just I, I have to I, I want to give PayPal the benefit of the doubt. I and don't. say that <laughs> I, I know. I mean, this is really awful. But but, you know, you're going to have a hierarchy out on the front lines are not your sharpest bulbs or wait, no, brightest bulbs or sharpest sticks or whatever. Um, so it's it's horrifying to imagine that that PayPal would be making a decision about locking an account by questioning the legality of an email encryption service and i mean that that just staggers the imagination so they said fi- finishing they said we're not sure which government PayPal is referring to but even the Fourth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution reads the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures, dot, dot, dot. So anyway, um, this cr- caused a huge flare-up on the Internet. And the news as of just a few hours ago is that the account is now unfrozen. Um, but yikes. It's just it's horrible, horrible precedent. I mean, we know that the U.S. government especially can freeze accounts. They can freeze accounts across the world when there is suspicion of criminal activity. But when a company, a financial company, does it proactively without yeah. any direction from the, the from any government, but just under the suspicion that maybe what you're doing is against the law, even though there is no clear precedent that says yes, you can't encrypt, you can't encrypt your email. Uh, that's just that's scary. I mean, that that's that scares me far more than anything the government may do. I mean, let's let's okay. NSA notwithstanding, the the federal government in the United States is, is normally pretty clear about when it takes steps to freeze finances. If we're now saying that PayPal or Citibank or Bank of America or Wells Fargo can freeze it because they have questions 
about what you're doing with your money, uh, that's that's a whole other level. Well, and also remember in the U.S., of course, we have the legal system and it takes a court order in order to make that happen. So, you know, a bank won't just freeze assets because someone from the government phones them and asks them to do that. They need a, they need a warrant. They need, you know, a legal document which is indemnifying them against any actions that the the aggrieved party may have too. You know, I I know for example that for an ISP to turn over IP addresses, you, the the FBI needs to get paperwork from a judge saying, you know, this is an active investigation, we have a case, and, you know, we need to have this information. So, yes, you're right. It's entirely different for a commercial entity to to just decide, oh, well, you know, we're just going to freeze this account. Well, I mean, without even having a dialogue with these people, without, without, I mean, they were able to phone them after the fact. Now, of course, you can understand why they didn't phone them before, because the company to, could yeah, easily immediately the drain the account, mm-hmm. you know, grab all the funds out of it. So, but but still, th- th- this should have been handled better, and it would be good that I mean, PayPal does have a, a reputation for problems. These little these little blinking lights over my shoulder, they are are, are PDP eight uh, recreation kits, and during this project, th- this was also a it was a, a sort of a privately crowdfunded project. Uh, organized by just a private individual who's got you know years of of background doing this, and he collected a whole bunch of people. And the idea would be, you know, we all pay into this, and if he achieves enough to bring the prices down to make it work, then the project goes forward. And sure enough, PayPal stomped on it right in the middle, and they said, "Wait a minute." You're charging for something that you haven't delivered yet. And it's like, well, yeah, and everyone who's involved knows that. Every, everyone in this understands that, you know, that their funds will, we will only process this if we achieve critical mass. But, it, but you know, this is the way you do it. And so anyway, it was like, you know, it got, ended up getting resolved, but it was a nightmare. So, Wow. And, yeah, and then there was that sentence of, "Well, do you have permission from the government to to do this?" Oh, and I, God. I, I just, I, I hear that, and I, I almost can't make the connection of why would you think I would need that? In fact, yeah. I should be asking you, do you have permission from the government to to freeze my funds? Now, yeah. I, I will and say, and said, and if we have, if we asking if we have government approval. To encrypt emails. It's like, oh, God. See, that's why I just have to think this is somebody who is just not on the, you know, I mean, is on the front line, but is way down the hierarchy and doing the best they can with, you know, with what they've got. Yeah, yeah. Well, we've got people in the chat room who are pointing out that uh, there's going to be suspicion that maybe PayPal received a phone call from a certain government agency or they got tapped on I the know. shoulder uh, when they were walking down the street. But it would seem to me that if that was the case, it, this decision wouldn't have been reversed so quickly. And in fact, if that was the case, they, they wouldn't even have answered the questions of ProtonMail. They would just say, no, I'm, we, I'm sorry, we have to freeze your account. Yes, I, I actually think this was a mistake by a low-level employee who just doesn't know what's you know who has more power than he should or he or she should 
more more power than sense. I believe is, is yeah. what we used to what we used to say. But um, this does give me an opportunity to segue uh, into a brief discussion of Proton Mail. I've been getting a lot. There's a lot of interest in it. Uh, I'm getting tweets all the time from people saying, "Hey, Steve, have you had a chance to look at Proton Mail?" And I have. But I just haven't had a chance to talk about it. So I thought, okay, let's... Wait a minute, wait a minute. I mean, the, the thing that I've heard about Proton Mail the most, and I don't believe this, but there's a lot of people who are saying, oh, it's, so it's just LavaBit. And it's not, right? It's, it's not just a copy of LavaBit. It's actually a slightly different business model. Oh, it's not LavaBit at all. Um, so, so it is... It, there are some very clever things. First of all, it is... It's end-to-end encryption... And that's you know we need a, we need to start having an acronym for that because that's going to be important end to end encryption. It is browser based, so like browser side and cross platform and JavaScript based. So you've got you have JavaScript crypto running in your browser, and of course JavaScript is universal. Browsers are universal, so you get cross you get universal cross platform compatibility. So when you when you log into them, um, they give you a page containing JavaScript written crypto and a brow a standard contemporary state of the art email you know web interface and. I've not looked at the details, so this is why this is just sort of a first pass. And in fact, they're in beta. I mean, they're they're still, you know, they're crowdfunding. They're in the process of pulling things together and getting the all of the the details worked out. So I don't know whether anyone yet knows everything about it. But but a user who is able to send email to another Proton Mail user has end-to-end encryption so that before the email leaves their browser, the browser encrypts it and sends this, you know, pseudo-random noise to um, the ProtonMail servers, in, and which are located in Switzerland specifically because it's believed that's a, a, a better place to put these things these days. And you see that more and more. Uh, that, that, that's where Threema is and, you know, other people who are wanting to do non-government interferable cloud things. And then your recipient log, logs in to ProtonMail and receives the email. So, for example, one could imagine if this existed a couple years ago in the era of uh, like pre-Edward Snowden disclosures to Glenn Greenwald, then then Snowden could have said, get a Proton Mail account, and then and that's all you have to do, and we'll be able to correspond securely. Because this didn't exist then, it was necessary for Greenwald to get to figure out PGP, which has is a much higher barrier to entry, a much higher bar. Um, than than just using Proton Mail. So the advantage to this assu- now this this assumes everything else is done right. There's lots. I have lots of questions still about the implementation of the crypto. But you know, I mean, the, the specific protocol level. How are they doing things? Because I have not seen the documentation for that. I, I'm a little. 
I'm made a little uncomfortable by one of the features that they offer. My feeling is a company that like this that is that is asserting that they're doing it absolutely correctly needs to only offer secure things. And one of the things they've got, one of their features on their you know their bullet points is self-destructing messages. They said with Proton Mail, emails are no longer permanent. You can set an optional expiration time on Proton Mail's encrypted emails. So they will be automatically deleted from the recipient's inbox once they've expired. This way, there are no trails of sent messages. Similar to Snapchat, in a way, we've added a way for, for you to have even more ephemeral communication. Well, that's nonsense. I mean, that can't work. We know because all someone has to do is copy the email out of their browser. And and then they're no longer able to reach in, you know, and get it wherever it is. So that ought to go away. I mean, I, that makes me really uncomfortable. The idea that they're selling something that they cannot deliver. They're, it they're making a like guarantee. Such a gimmick. I mean, it, it, we it, see we see that a lot in messaging apps where because uh, I, I live at a school and I see students who are absolutely convinced that when they send something in Snapchat, it means, oh, well, I don't I don't have to worry about anyone this ever coming back to haunt me. And you know, it, it's it's such a, a misunderstanding of what's happening when someone reads your message. It, 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 again, yeah. it's if you don't trust the person reading your message not to misuse the technology, the technology is useless. Yes. So anyway, so I wish they didn't have that because that's something. I mean, that worries me. Uh, so so I, I you know so the jury's still out. Uh, we'll definitely take a look at it once it gets further along and when documentation is available for the protocol. For example, there are they've got some hurdles to overcome in terms of interpersonal email sharing. That is, um, you know, the way the keys are managed. For example, Apple has stated that iMessage is secure, yet we know it's actually not secure because they manage people's keys and the key management is transparent to the user but that means that they could provide a key for themselves and your i your message would get signed under their key allowing them to read it so so the the problem is it's difficult to make something that is really easy to I mean truly easy to use which is also truly tno and and as soon as you start involving multiple users that becomes trickier for example the the main topic for this week is of course you know tno cloud storage and it's that's easy to do if you're the only person who ever needs access to your files it becomes way trickier not um, impossible, but trickier. If you need control, you need to have controlled disclosure of your of some files to other people, and that's exactly what the email model is, where you want to be able to selectively send email to other, presumably Proton Mail users, and have that done securely. What that essentially means is you need to get their key. Add their public key and encrypt 
your email under their public key under the assumption that nobody else will have their private key. Yet key management is crucial and we have no idea how ProtonMail is doing that. So so to, to everyone who's been asking, it's on the radar. Uh, we'll uh, keep our eye on it. And as soon as we know more, uh, absolutely take a, a close look at it. They have got something clever. Uh, and again, no specific details yet. But how do you send email to somebody who isn't a Proton Mail subscriber? The presumption is that you would use the reason you, you need to use the web to view mail as a recipient is that you need the JavaScript to decrypt. Apparently, it's possible to turn a message into a link and then email a, the, the recipient a link, which then they click, which takes them obviously to a web browser session where they then provide a password which you have given them to decrypt the email that's behind that link. So, you know, they've, they've, they've come up with solutions for these things, but I'm very uncomfortable about this self-destructing messages feature. The idea that people who are serious about security would even offer that is a little frightening and, and disturbing. So we, I would say, you know, it, it looks like a great thing. We, we just need to see how it's going to be implemented. And, and unfortunately, key management is where these things tend to, to get tricky because you, you can't trust anyone except the person that you're corresponding with. Ultimately, they've got to provide you with the key. And then it's hard for that to be transparent. Yeah, unfortunately, I think we're in that age where trusting that someone is going to offer you secure communications, it, it doesn't work anymore. I mean, they actually have no. to show you what the widgets are behind the scene before you can sign off and say, okay, I, I think you're doing it right. Uh, and, and you're right. I think it, it worries me a little bit that they're trying to do this ephemeral chat, this ephemeral email. That's more of a marketing thing than it is anything else. Yep. And yeah. and that's, to my, to my way of thinking, that's you know that crosses this the security line mm -hmm. you don't want to have somebody who's who's selling you absolute robust security who's also saying oh and you know email you send can be made to evaporate it's like <laughs> no it can't <laughs> so don't tell me it can it's magic <laughs> it erases them from the minds of the people who have seen it actually steve this reminds me a little uh, this just a couple of days ago ars technica got their hands on a black phone. Have you have you heard about that? They um, heard of it, haven't they, seen it yet. They they got their hands on it. Not not a whole lot of time. It was it was basically first impressions. Uh you know, decent Android phone, decent specs, screen, memory processor, the, the typical fare. But of course, it's a fork of KitKat which has been integrated with several security enhancements, things that uh, for example, it, it automatically will anonymize your searches. It will automatically anonymize your IP. But one of the things that it comes with is the silent circle. It's a it's a paid service and it gives sure. you 2 years of silent surf, uh, silent circle secure voice video and messaging. Uh, I think that's and, Moxie Marlin spikes. Yes, yes uh, it is. Uh, yeah. And the way that they handle the person you send the secure chat to uh, and having the same service is they also give you three gifting subscriptions. So you can gift a subscription to three of your friends or family, and now they have the client as well. It's, it's expensive. It's more expensive, but 
at a certain level, I trust that because they tell you where they're getting their money from. The they tell you exactly how the security works, and yep. they you actually have to go through a little process in order to make sure that you're set up properly. Uh, I kind of like that. It, it gives me it gives me the positive feedback that that I've encrypted my communications. Yes. Um, another example as we we've often talked about. Uh, the uh, secure chat application, Threema, T-H-R-E-E-M-A. And um, they have a system where you have, you have, I think it's like uh, red, orange, and green level of authentication. And, and the only way to get the green level that is absolutely assured um, privacy between two devices is if they're physically together and snap each other's QR code so that it's a physical exchange of, of the devices of each other's public key and it's only if the public key is, is obtained that way that is not through a shared server or, or a you know any weaker form of authentication only if it's a face-to-face meeting of the devices do you get the green level and so yes that's a perfect example of yes it's more difficult but you know if you're wanting to chat with friends and you you know you can arrange to meet them then it works yeah, uh, chat, people in the chat room are asking how much that black phone costs. It's not available yet, but it, I think it's for six twenty nine. Um, now, actually, I, I think I, this is a good segue for for talking about how you would authenticate those devices. Silent Circle, as you said, uses QR codes, so you you have to be in the physical vicinity of the other phone in order to to grab the the code. What do you think, Steve? If if they say NFC enabled this this uh, software so that you can actually tap someone and have their their uh, public encryption key i would say that's probably okay as long as as long as there's no way for the nfc to like be enabled in the same sense that bluetooth is often enabled and by the way always re-enabled after we update our ios which is annoying you know you update any ios device and it always turns bluetooth back on and so you have to remind yourself you have to remember to turn it off so so the idea would be if the if the way the user interface worked it was it was enable a key exchange like while my finger is on the screen you know holding down the enable circle and I tap the devices together, you know. So I mean, you know, really, ra- you know, do something that that's convenient, but absolutely be sure that there's no way for a bad guy to like, you know, bump into your pocket and and snag your key. It's that's the new the next version of the Sting will have uh, people just bumping into people's NFC pockets with their phone. <laughs> it's uh, it's the high tech version of it. Uh, now, of course, Steve. We don't have to worry, though, right? We don't have to worry about at least the government eavesdropping on our on our phone conversations because, uh, well, the Supreme Court said that the police need a warrant in order to be able to uh, do that. So we're totally safe, right? 
Well, this this was a a decision that a lot of people were 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 happy to see. I mean, there was, it generated a huge amount of news. I guess it was late last week uh, that that the Supreme Court did say, "Oh yeah, the cartoon in the show notes." Uh, I love that. Uh, right. Uh, uh, the the Supreme Court did say that a warrant was was required in order to, like like for example if you're you're pulled over by the police they can't require you to unlock your phone and let them just snoop around in it uh, so that's you know that it was good that those protections were uh, were reasserted by the court. Um, speaking of iOS updates, uh, we did have an update to uh, of iOS to 7.1.2. Um, there's a laundry list of things they fixed. Uh, I won't try to enumerate them, but I mean, it was enough that everyone should take some time to update. I would say it was an important security fix. They refreshed the uh, certificate root store, which is a good thing to do. That, that you know, everyone t- we, we always talk about certificate authority root stores and devices. So they updated that. Probably put some new ones in, and, and hopefully got rid of some old expired or debris ones. Um, then there's a long list of fixes. There were they fixed a bunch of remote code execution problems. Uh, and, and in fact, this fixes many of the things we've talked about over the last couple of weeks. For example, there was a famous uh, revelation that email attachments were not being encrypted in, in the previous iOS 7.1.1. So this fixes that so that email attachments are now being encrypted. Um, there was a a, a way of disabling find my phone that was in the news in the security community for a while that's been fixed there were two lock screen bypasses that have been fixed uh, a Siri hack has been foreclosed on and then just a ton of f- things fixed in WebKit and and uh, interestingly uh, a bunch of the same things were done for Mac OS 10 and Apple TV, demonstrating, as a friend of mine pointed out, that you know they're now using a common code base. So when they fix these things that are being used across their device, uh, 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 their device spectrum, everybody gets the benefit of that. Uh, and then, just again, a reminder: when you do update 7.1.2, for the sake of power consumption and security, uh, if you don't need your Bluetooth radio turned on, by all means, turn it off. Because the update will have, <laughs> as it always does, re-enabled Bluetooth for you. That's always my favorite parts of updates. And this is not just iOS devices. This this works on Android. This works on proprietary OSs where you may have tweaked it perfectly. So it is exactly as secure as you want it to be. You do the right. update. And now you have to remember what you did to make everything work. Because, of course, it's going to reset everything to its default settings. Right. And, I mean... I- I just wonder if it isn't Apple believing that we that their end users don't know enough to choose whether they want it or not, and that Bluetooth offers so many features that, you know, oh, it's a good thing, because then our iBeacons are able to track you as you walk through retail stores and so forth. Uh, it reminds uh, me of the uh, the Adobe update screen. I get it all the time. I, I have a regular protocol that I follow to, in order to get the most recent updates. But it has that nag screen that comes up every single time I install where it says, McAfee. Are, are you sure you want us not just to do it automatically? I'm like, no, I've told you 15,000 uh, times. I will yep. do it. I don't want you popping up at random times. Yep. 
Oh, yeah. it's it's nannyism. So um, we talked last week about. Actually, it was a it was, uh, in our Q and A. Uh, someone asked a question about HTTPS everywhere, and I ran across uh, an interesting analysis uh, of of the top fifty most used sites in Alexa's ranking. In fact, I created a Bitly shortcut: bit.ly slash all lowercase Alexa. HTTPS, so A L E X A HTTPS, and it's a an interesting analysis. They took the top fifty most popular sites on the net, and some quick takeaways from the the entire um, readout, which you can see at that link, is that um, twenty nine out of the top fifty websites, which they noticed fifty eight percent worked perfectly over HTTPS. So, you know, we're definitely seeing a growth in the use and the availability of of SSL TLS encrypted connections. They noted that Google globally consistently offers SSL everywhere. And in some countries like the U.S. and Canada, even defaults to SSL on its own. Um, a little anecdote, however, I will note that the only problems people report um, with certificate revocation, the, the OCSP, uh, Online Certificate Status Protocol, is Google. For whatever reason, I mean, we all, as we know, Google is hostile, unfortunately, to certificate revocation. They've stated publicly and loudly they don't believe in it. They don't think it works. They don't think it's worthwhile. Um, and so it's interesting also that they also have the crappiest uh, online certificate revocation. Uh, I've got mine turned on in hard fail mode in Firefox, as do now tens of thousands of podcast listeners who who learned that they could do this i never get a problem at all and frankly i never even get one from google but the only problems that i hear people reporting is and they sort of chuckle about it as well you know google's apparently doesn't have very good certificate revocation services is like uh no they don't uh, Steve, um, I, I've, I've always been a little bit puzzled as to why Google is so hostile to certificate revocation. I mean, it's it's a basic, basic thing that you need to do in, in a networked world. And I, I remember the first time I heard about this was was at Google I.O. and I was in uh, one of the developer sessions. And they were they were talking about it. Some of the Google people were saying, oh, yeah, we, we don't deal with that. I'm thinking, wait, what? You know, this, so this is yeah. an in-house policy? What What is it about revocation that just rubs Google the wrong way? I I honestly don't know. My feeling is it, it it boils down to one person named Adam Langley's personal crusade. And he's he is in charge of security, so I mean, he's the guy and so you know, he has the right to have whatever feeling he wants. But but he believes that revocation doesn't make sense because anyone who is in a position to take advantage of a revoked certificate is also in a position to defeat the revocation checking. And he's right in that it's possible that 
such a person could be in such a position, but he's wrong in asserting that it's guaranteed. It, it's not guaranteed. We know it's not. So, and I also think that there's some some history with the crypto libraries and problems. Google also created their own thing called a CRL set, which if you if you look at the original statements about it, they it looked like they were intending to go and create their own standard and the certificate industry ignored them. And so I think they're a little pissed off and they're like saying, well, you know, fine, we're just not going to play then. And I think it's this is all short term policy on their part. They, they've got to bring their browser into compliance. The certificate authority industry is really unhappy with Chrome and Google and their policies. Uh, so th- this isn't a long term strategy. I think, you know, we just saw them last week announce that they were forking the open SSL code. Uh, to create what they called boring SSL. Well, the open SSL code has all of this. It's got OCSP. It's got full revocation, full certificate chain checking. So I think that this, you know, in time we're going to see this coming back and and being fully honored because this CRL set that Google uses now uh, is proven ineffective. I think Google wants to take their ball and go home. Yeah, well, they, you know, they're big, and you know, they're they're doing very well with their browser. But this was just, you know, they got off on the wrong foot. They they they, they planted a flag somewhere that has turned out to be quicksand. And, yeah. and because it, it I, seems, I think, yeah, it, it could slow down visitors occasionally. Uh, yes, it might be a, a slight bit more of a technical hassle. Yes, you can defeat certificate revocation, but it it doesn't seem like that's a good enough reason not to honor it. Well. And ask users. Ask yeah. users, would, would would they mind a maybe a slowdown? And by the way, I should mention that that you know that's actually old news. All of the major certificate authorities now have um, a CDN support. They've got content delivery networks that have that have servers near their users and OCSP is working now it is not a, a, a big slowdown that's that's a, that's maybe five or more years old news so that's not the case everyone I know who's turned revocation checking on and even hard fail in which is available in Firefox doesn't notice any change and it's and the end user now knows, that their certificates are being checked for revocation. So so the point is, ask the end user. The end user wants that on and is willing to make a, a slight trade-off. And notice it's not the entire session with a site. It's the very first connection. And after that, the credentials are cached. So all of your browsing around the site, all of the image downloads, everything else you're getting from that site is not slowed down at all. It's just the the first time you check to make sure that the 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 certificate you're receiving is authentic and has not been revoked. So I mean, I, I just think Google's wrong on this. You know, but that's okay. They can be wrong. Yeah, exactly. They can be wrong and and that is a little bit of old news, Steve. So 
What if we move from old news to uh, new <laughs> vulnerability? This one is actually kind of scary. You want to explain what they found? Um, okay, so you talk about the Android? Oh, yeah. A deal? Yeah. Um, okay, this was... Actually, what was disturbing about this was that it was arguably by design. So um, the news came out that um, that 86% of Android devices were vulnerable to crypto key theft. And because that sounds like a bad thing, it made a lot of headlines. Now, it turns out that was never the case. It was 10.3% because it turns out it's only Android version 4.3 devices. So all of the 4.4 KitKat devices that are currently in use are okay. And apparently this was introduced in 4.3 so that earlier devices are also okay. So it's only this little window of 4.3. So so this was discovered by uh, IBM security researchers. And the, 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 their... Their research report is titled Android Key Store Stack Buffer Flow, or sorry, Stack Buffer Overflow, then colon, to keep things simple, buffers are always larger than needed. And in, and I, I'm not, I, I have to say, I, it's necessary for me to say I'm not kidding because people aren't going to believe what the, the, the comment block that was in the source code. So this is this is protecting the 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 Android key store which contains all of the all of the keys that applications place in the store for safekeeping. The comment reads key store is a secured storage for key value pairs. In this implementation each file stores one key value pair. Keys are encoded in file names and values are encrypted with checksums. The encryption key is protected by a user-defined password. And here it is. To keep things simple, buffers are always larger than the maximum space we need. So boundary checks on buffers are omitted. <laughs> I can't tell you how horrible that. I, I actually, I that's a surprise. Congratulations, we just found a way to fix all buffer overflows. We just make the buffers bigger than we normally do, and it's done, right? It's Big, bigger than you need, <laughs> and then you just don't need to check because there's and no way of, that an attacker is just going to continue to flood the buffer until finally it tips over. I, that's no who, would, I, no. who would who would think of that? Yeah, yeah. So. So in IBM's disclosure, first of all, they did this very responsibly. This was disclosed to the Android developers on September 9th of 2013, nearly 10 months ago. So, so they waited this long for the vulnerable version for 4.3 to sort of drain out of the market because they recognize this is not good. Now... It takes a lot to exploit this, um, it, but it's definitely 
exploitable by code you load into the device. So you would have to you'd, you have to load some malicious software onto your Android device, Android 4.3, uh, and only version 4.3. Um, but in IBM's disclosure, they said, successfully exploiting this vulnerability leads to a malicious code execution under the key store process. Such code can leak the device's lock credentials since the master key is derived from the lock credentials Whenever the device is unlocked, then you have access to um, to the um, essentially into the key store. Can leak the decrypted master keys, data, and hardware-backed key identifiers from memory. Can leak encrypted master keys, data, and hardware-backed key identifiers from the disk for for later offline attacks and can interact with the hardware-backed storage and performed crypto operations, for example, arbitrary data signing on behalf of the user. So, the, so if, if just, just to reiterate, this is not a problem today, not since 4.4. Um, and the Google guys were, you know, the Android team was notified 10 months ago. IBM just waited until now to disclose what they found. Uh, and, and you know, the real takeaway here is, oh, my goodness. You know, the idea that someone, uh, I'm just stunned that some coder who is, who is coding arguably one of the most sensitive areas of crypto in Android could say to keep things simple, Right, so they don't want to bother checking buffer boundaries. To keep things simple, buffers are always larger than the maximum space we need, so boundary checks on buffers are omitted. Unbelievable. <laughs> uh, to pick a place in your code base not to check the buffer overflow possibilities, I, to do it in the encryption module, I just it kind of boggles the mind. Uh, they must have had an intern working on this thing. I, it's I, I don't understand why, how you do that. And in fact, I don't understand how it gets through your team. Uh, if someone must have been checking this work, and if anyone I know saw that comment, it should have raised a dozen red flags immediately. Right. I mean, the comment is is so obvious. You, you know, you you might argue that you'd have to really study the code to. To like be sure that the person wasn't checking buffer boundaries somewhere, but here's the code. I mean, the comment says, "I'm not checking buffer boundaries." <laughs> the comment should just say, "Insert hack here." And that's oh. that's basically what you've wow. done. Anyone searching through this code base, if uh, the ver the very first thing I would do is I would do a search for buffer. I would I would look. Is, is there any place here that's dealing with buffer? Because that's where I'm going to inject my exploit. This comment is telling you. Oh yeah, if you just make it big enough, it, it will work. Yeah, it just yeah, just this is the only place you you should focus on. Yeah, and it's funny too because after that comment, after citing that comment in IBM security report, they said, "Though things are simple, buffers are not always larger than the maximum space they need." So uh, <laughs> yeah, there's a lesson for you. Wow, oh, Steve, uh, makes me um, not want to program anymore. Last week. Uh, one in the Q and A, we had someone 
ask how it was that he was sharing a, I think it was a spreadsheet or maybe I don't remember if it was a document or a spreadsheet. I think he, he said with his wife um, and sharing the, the Google link and was disturbed to find apparently anonymous users also viewing the same document. And the first person to send me a note about that, I, I, I grabbed uh, Charlie Gulf. So uh, through Twitter at Charlie Gulf. Thank you, Charlie. Uh, he tweeted uh, last week's Google Docs question. New anonymous users seem to be created every time you view the doc link without signing in first. So that explains the mystery. A number of other people also informed me of that, but Charlie got in first. So just so thank you, everybody, for making sure that I knew that. Um, uh, so that, that explains what happened. Apparently, for example, you know, his wife wasn't signed in and she clicked the link and that created anonymous users rather than, you know, herself, who would obviously not be anonymous. So mystery solved. And there was a little bit of news, uh, which is completely off topic, but then so was uh, supercapacitors when I went crazy about that a few years ago. Uh, I, I talked about ultracapacitors years ago uh, following some story uh, because, and, and we spent some time on it talking about what a potentially fabulous solution this was for energy storage for uh, you know, like re re regenerative braking to put the energy into the capacitor, taking it out of the car, and then using that to kickstart your car and so forth. Anyway, I ran across a story. Uh, I just wanted to put it on people's radar. Um, I created a bit.ly link for the article. Uh, and I don't know why I made it upper and lower case. I shouldn't have, but it's, it's, it's so it's capital, it, it's a bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y slash capital N capital H, numeral three, hyphen, capital C, R-A-C-K-I-N-G. So cracking. NH3 is the chemical formula for ammonia. And this is an article uh, which was just published uh, that says a hydrogen breakthrough could be a game changer for the future of car fuels. What's exciting about this is when you think about it, ammonia. Uh, it turns out we have a huge ammonia production capability globally. Actually, China makes a huge percentage of the world's ammonia. Uh, but we have transport. Ammonia is famously used in the creation of fertilizer, one of the main components of fertilizer. Uh, so we're making a ton of it. Well, if you notice NH3, that's a molecule of nitrogen and three of hydrogen. In other words, ammonia is an interesting storage form for hydrogen. And what these guys have come up with is a very inexpensive and apparently practical means of cracking, as is the term, for, of cracking ammonia uh, back into its constituents, meaning nitrogen and hydrogen, freeing the hydrogen from the ammonia, uh, which you could either apparently burn in internal combustion engines with small modifications or use as uh, to, to power fuel cells in purely electric vehicles. But one of the problems we've had is how do we carry 
this much energy around. Uh, you know, lithium-ion batteries are what electric cars are using today. And while, you know, if you have them large enough, they can give you enough miles, they take, they're really difficult and time-consuming to recharge. So the idea would be, you know, people are talking about a hydrogen economy, the idea of like, you know, switching to, hy to hydrogen fuel. And these guys are arguing that, well, you know, an ammonia economy may be vastly easier and more practical to implement. Uh, anyway, this, as I said, completely off topic, but I wanted to mention it because we had a lot of fun with the, with the ultra capacitor technology some time ago. And, you know, this is early on research, but uh, really looks interesting and promising. I actually, I'm really happy that you mentioned this. I, I'm, I'm absolutely into uh, energy production. And, and this, this oh. is one of the most promising technologies I've seen in a while because all it requires is you to be able to split water, uh, pull out the hydrogen, be able to combine it with uh, H2 and N2, so nitrogen and hydrogen to get ammonia, or go one yep. step further and create something like ammonia hydroxide, which is rocket fuel. And then you use a catalyst like I, there's a zirconium, a zirconium something. There's an alloy that will actually naturally break apart uh, hydroxide. Yes. So you free up the hydrogen. And, and that gives you a really easy way to store hydrogen in a stable compound, break it yes. apart, and have nothing but nitrogen and water coming out the tailpipe. And, of course, nitrogen yes. is, is a huge component of, of the atmosphere. It's, it's completely harmless to us. So... Well, yeah, and, and actually, cool. we're 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 only putting back the nitrogen that we took exactly. out. Exactly, it's it's a so, net so, zero. Yeah, exactly. So, and it's 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 a it's a zero carbon fuel, which is what's uh, to me very exciting about it. Is a nice way of packaging up hydrogen uh, and then giving back the nitrogen that we took out of the atmosphere when we burn the hydrogen. So, yeah, yeah, and you're right. And it starts with water. Right. And we've got people in the chat room who are saying, oh, but this all requires energy input. Where does the energy come from? This is not a way to generate electricity, this energy. This is a way to store right. it. That's actually and, the problem. And, we've got generation. We just don't yep. have effective, efficient storage methods. And this could be one of them. You could have something that's inert for hundreds of years before you use it. Uh, and it will it will keep the energy that you poured into it to form the ammonia. That's that's uh, that's future tech right there. Yep. And and you know these guys note in their article that 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 ammonia cracking has been done before. It's very well known, but but traditionally it's required extremely rare, extremely expensive. Uh, you know, rare metals in order to interact with the ammonia and perform the cracking. The breakthrough these guys made is an, an, a very inexpensive, I don't remember, some sort of an oxide uh, that they came up with that, that makes, you know, it, it, it makes it very inexpensive to build a very small uh, ammonia cracking reactor in order to put ammonia in and get hydrogen out. So again, this is you know years away from us driving this around, but really you know potentially interesting as, as a means for getting away from our you know our our liquid uh, petroleum gas technology yeah. with all of its carbon problems. Well, I mean, just remember this is another way to say fuel cell vehicle, fuel cell car, because yes. one of the biggest problems with fuel cell, as people point out, is how do you transport hydrogen? Hydrogen is explosive. Hydrogen can be very dangerous. 
well, don't transport uh, hydrogen. Transport ammonia. Ammonia is very easy yes. to, to transport. It's not as dangerous. It's really easy yep. to fill into a tank, and then the reaction takes place in the, the fuel cell itself. Well, okay, yes, Steve, exactly. let's get away from that because <laughs> I, I want my squirrel update. Okay, so I'm cranking away on squirrel. Um, I mentioned uh, the crowd insight uh, a couple weeks ago, and we generated a few more translators who went over. We're now at 60 languages, people standing by to perform the translation into, uh, actually English is one of those 60, so 59 languages other than English, uh, and 414 translators. So I just wanted to thank everybody for their, their willingness at this point to to participate. I'm now, I mean, it's, it's, it's all I'm doing. I was working on it until I had to stop yesterday to start putting this podcast together. Once we disconnect from Skype, I, I will return to it. Essentially, all the pieces are there. That All of the protocol design is finished. I, I just uh, wrapped up the storage uh, technology for, uh, for securely storing identities either in files or in QR codes and, and other forms. Uh, in a way that that they're secure, um, everything is there. So I am now in the process. I'm back working in the user interface, gluing all the pieces together. I haven't published any strings for translation because too much is subject to change. For example, I did the entropy harvester, and it worked out so much better than I expected when I designed the user interface that several of the UI panels are just gone. They just There's no need to have someone sit there watching it generate like painfully harvesting entropy. It just, it's just able to happen in the background and we're just overflowing with more than we need. So, so it really makes more sense for me to get a reference implementation finished, which is what I'm directly working towards now. Um, once we have that, then that'll give me all the strings in English that I actually needed. Um, and then all the technology is in place for publishing those to crowd in, getting people to translate them. And then we will, I'll be able to immediately um, export those from crowd in back into the app and create Squirrel in 60 different languages. So uh, I'm working on it as fast as I can. That's that's my project. It's not right fast now. enough for humanity, Steve. We need that now. Yeah, we do, and uh, uh, we'll we'll have it as soon as I can. Uh, I did get a nice note. Uh, I dated June twenty sixth, so a few days ago, from a Stefan Zacher Nielsen, uh, who of course is a Spinrite user. He said, "Hello, Steve. I've just purchased Spinrite as the only tool which was able to solve the problem I had." with a damaged hard drive. Spinrite was able to repair the drive so that I was then able to restore about 3,500 very important files to another drive. I must say, it is very satisfying to use a strong and cheap tool, I'm sure he meant inexpensive, like Spinrite. And afterwards, having such a good experience, thank you very much. I can wipe off the sweat from my face and take a deep, relieving breath. He said, I've spread the good news of my experience with Spinrite to all my friends on Facebook, so perhaps your sales will increase in the future. Who knows? Stefan. So, Stefan, thanks for sharing your experience with Spinrite. 
Yeah, I, I have to say, Steve, I've heard these ads for years and years and years, but uh, I, I, I actually, I've had my share of spin right saved my butt stories, um, including oh, truly, one, yeah, one very recently. Uh, some of the uh, the folks in the chat room were telling me how I could use spin right in level two to perhaps fix a problem I was having with a few Samsung SSDs. Yes, and, uh, it actually worked. So I'm, I'm doing a, a oh. know-how episode that's because I had a batch of about twelve, and so I, I decided to try it on one. I, in six months, my my read and write speed was cut in half on the same computer, uh-huh. the same variables. I couldn't figure it out. Ran Spinrite, got it all back. So yeah. uh, I, I don't quite understand how it works yet, but I'm going to figure it out. I'm going I'm to figure out what voodoo you've, you've packed into Spinrite, Steve. Very cool. Actually, it's funny because it was, the, it was the reports that we started getting as SSDs became more popular. People began reporting that Spinrite was recovering them. It was fixing them. And so I thought, oh, okay, I guess... Spinrite's going to keep on going. I mean, because I've been sort of feeling a little gloomy, you know, about, you know, the the death of the hard disk drive and the ultimate replacement of that with solid state. But it turns out that the engineers of solid state have pushed their technology just as far to the line, as close to the line as the hard drive guys have so that solid state technology is needing error correction and maintenance in the same way that that you know me- electromechanical storage does. So Spinrite has a future, and after six, uh, there will be a seven. That's blasphemy, Steve. I've always been told that SSDs will completely remove any need for error correction or or lo- looking at the data integrity. I mean, haven't you heard this? Didn't you read the press releases? You know, and you know, one of the things that I'm sort of seeing is that. It's a little frightening. Certainly hard drives can fail completely. You know, I mean, they can just die. But I, my, the sense I get is hard drives fail sort of more softly. SSDs, when they go, they're just gone. And I don't know if you've had that experience, but I'm, I'm a little more comfortable with something that begins to sort of have problems and let me know that it's in trouble rather than just spontaneously no longer having any storage. Yeah, no, I, I've seen that, especially on the enterprise level. If you try to yep. put a consumer drive into a server, it will work fine until suddenly it just disappears, dead, no access whatsoever. The, yeah. the enterprise products actually build in a huge amount of extra memory cells and the yep. the tools, the built-in tools, will start telling you you need to replace this. You need to replace this. Yep. In fact, uh, the, the there's a tool from a manufacturer that I use right now in my servers, which will actually give error codes like a standard SATA hard drive will, and then it will shut itself off when it feels that it's in imminent danger of losing data. And it, it, it's it's to tell you, look, I'm going to shut down. You get one more <laughs> chance to turn me back on and copy data like, off. I'm really serious. It's like, no, no, seriously, <laughs> seriously, no, dude, dude, listen, listen, <laughs> really, take care of me right now. To this one, yeah, <laughs> very cool. Well, Steve, uh, we've uh, we've gone through the news. That took a while, but now we need to hear about cloud storage. Uh, this this is something that I know it's kind of touchy with the with the security now audience. Same thing with the this week in enterprise tech audience because. We've been taught by the best, by the master, to trust no one. 
But anytime we talk about cloud storage, you, you don't have that chain of possession of your data and you don't know if you can trust it. Yeah. So I guess what I want to do for the balance of the podcast and with this sort of as our kickoff of a series is to sort of lay out my thinking about the state of the art of cloud storage. First of all, you know, it since we first talked about it, when we first talked about it, there were a few providers. Uh, I had found Jungle Disk and liked Jungle Disk. That was probably, wow, I don't know. Certainly it was during the podcast, so it wasn't 10 years ago, but maybe seven or eight. Um, since then, it's really become a thing. And, um, you know, we've had collapsing mass storage costs. We've had rising bandwidth and falling bandwidth costs. The, the point being that that incredible amounts of remote storage are accessible to individual end users, not local, but in the cloud. Uh, and people increasingly are used because they've got uh, camera phones, they, they've, they've got phones, they, they have photos, they've got movies, they've got media collections. They, they have stuff that's generally big, which they would like to back up. Um, also, there's been, of course, a, an explosion of of mobile devices and people are looking at, at the cloud not only as the backup of a single device but as a bridging mechanism for cross-device sharing. So so we're more in a multi-platform world today than we used to be. Also with the with the continuing rise of the Mac as as a percentage of desktops we're, we're we're seeing many environments which are multi-platform, and of course, Linux is continuing to be of growing popularity. So certainly, it's not the case that we're just in a Windows-centric world anymore. And so, the cloud can connect all that stuff together. One of the things that I recognize that will be a focus is that there isn't just one cloud user. There is there isn't one profile for a user. Um, you know, I mentioned all the different platforms that are that are available. And so an important feature for cloud storage solutions will be some kind of cross-platform capability. It, it might be, I mean, my intention is for, to assemble a spreadsheet, a comprehensive spreadsheet, which, uh, and this will be done over time, which is a big grid of features. So people will be able to cross-reference features and providers and see who has what. It's not a resource that, uh, that we have right now, but you know that my, my goal is to build that spreadsheet. And, and I recognize that there are some people who only use Windows and there may be, for example, a Windows-only cloud storage client uh, that is feature complete and provides what they need for that platform. So in this spreadsheet, it'll show that it, it it's compatible with Windows, but not with the other things, which for that person may be fine, whereas that would be a deal breaker for anybody else. 
Um, another thing is uh, the issue of cost because, you know, people's budgets vary uh, and their storage needs vary. One of the things that that you see a lot in cloud storage providers are is this notion of tiered plans where you've got, you know, typically th there's the free teaser that, you know, maybe it's we're going to give you X amount of storage free, maybe for a year. Sometimes it's for life. But and, and their presumption is you're going to end up needing more than that. And so that'll that'll get you in the door, get you using their product, and then you'll migrate into a paid tier where they ultimately want to be. One of the things that I know we've talked about in the past is that the the hard drive prices have fallen so dramatically as storage capacity has exploded that the the the, the economics of paid cloud storage makes sense. I mean, it makes sense that a company could be buying four terabyte drives and chopping them up into many smaller pieces and charging a an individual user some percentage of that drive's one-time purchase price per year. And I'm sure there are business plans where they show, oh, look, you know, we're going to capture this many people. We're going to hold on to them for this length of time and we're going to end up easily recouping our investment many times over. You just know there are business plans like that. Um, my own model, that is the model that I've been using so far, is the pay-as-you-go model. You know, some of them, as I was mentioning, are like tiered plans where for, for this amount of money, you get 100 gigs uh, you know, this amount of money per year, you get 100 gigs. Um, I'm partial to the pay for what you use. Uh, and it's actually, the, it's the model that I'm using now. To give people a, a, a sense for that, um, I'm using Amazon S3 as my, as my provider. And um, um, my office manager who maintains GRC's books... Uh, and does our accounting uh, and and has her computer, all of her critical files continually backed up um, using Jungle Disk because I'm still using that as my trust no one client. Um, she's using S3 for that. I have a massive archive of antique computer documentation, of course, uh, where I just, I want it to be safe. There are sites that have all this now. We we see websites disappear from time to time. Of course, you know, TrueCrypt site disappeared famously, for example. Anyway, the, there are, there have been sites archiving documentation of all the old, you know, PDP family and early mini computers. I want all that for the future. All of that is up on Amazon S3. Also, all of the security now audio files are there. So um, we've got 82 gigs of storage on S3 for which I pay 
cents a month. I looked at when preparing these notes, I looked at at June's bill from Amazon. They Amazon charges three cents per gigabyte for the first terabyte per month of storage used. And so there's a different model. There's the the you know the pay as you go. I'm partial to that because that just feels right to me. There's something about, you know, the 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 tiered pricing is the same way the cell phone providers, you know, charge you for how many text messages you're going to, you know, they set a cap. And if you go over that, you get penalized. Um, and essentially, what that guarantees is most people are going to be under that with, you know, unused capacity. Eh, that doesn't appeal to me as much. Um, so, and, and then Amazon has additional features, for example, for further reducing the cost, which I'm not even taking advantage of. They have reduced redundancy storage. They've got Glacier, which is a write mostly but slow retrieval system that allows both of those, allow them to lower their cost and they pass that on to you. Uh, and other features like you, you can ship a hard drive back and forth to them in order to, uh, in order to quickly import or export bulk data. So, they, so I don't mean to focus on them, but they, but that, that's a good example of the the sort of an, an alternative model. And then, of course, many people also have their own local network attached storage. That is, they've got their own cloud storage in a local cloud, and they may still want to use external storage um, to supplement that, or as a backing store for their local NAS where they have fast access on their LAN to the local NAS, and then that gets backed up to the cloud. And then, of course, another way of, of slicing this is, do you want turnkey or do you want toolkit? Um, I, I've talked before, you know, Carbonite is a, is a sponsor, has been, of this podcast. Uh, and, you know, my girlfriend, Jenny, has her laptop backed up using Carbonite because, I mean, she's a perfect candidate for that because she just wants her stuff safe. She doesn't want to push buttons. She doesn't want to mess with anything. She doesn't want to tune things. Um, and she's actually not someone who is knee-jerk about TNO. Um, for her, um, maybe the web access would be useful uh, where you sacrifice the trust no one client side encryption, um, who knows? But you know that's not a need she has. If this if this had to be really complicated for her, she wouldn't use it. So it's far better that her laptop that you know she knows her laptop is backed up all the time, so that she can get it back when she needs it. Um, so that's more the turnkey model, and I'll certainly entertain those providers. That is the the the, the providers who offer a something you install in your computer, just sort of a set it and forget it. Although you know it's really not this audience's focus, and it's not my personal focus. My personal focus is I like the idea of a toolkit where we're decoupling probably a multi-platform client from a solid storage provider so that we're able to choose each of those 
to which meets our needs. Maybe, for example, the pay-as-you-go isn't as economical depending upon how much storage you're using, where a flat rate is. Or one of the reasons, for example, that my storage uh, is inexpensive with Amazon is there's not a lot of transactions. There's two audio files a week go up, and Jungle Disk is very good in dealing with S3 uh, with its interface with Amazon, backing up only the files that that Sue has changed on her machine from from night to night. So there's you know I because Amazon does have a transaction fee. So maybe you'd rather have a system that where there, you weren't being charged for transactions, where your bill wasn't varying, you were just paying a flat rate, and that was sort of an, a, an umbrella that covered all of your various uh, systems and uses. So, you know, there are there are many ways to go with this. And then, of course, there's a notion of a hybrid solution where, uh, and I sort of use Google Drive as an example, where Google Drive gives you a very nice web-based interface, which is multi-platform and very convenient to use. Yet at the same time, you could use a multi-platform client, which is doing client-side encryption, thus TNO, uh, for example, of a folder in Google Drive. So you've got Google Drive and, and you know it's meeting your needs. You're able to work with it through your web browser for moving files in and out very comfortably, yet in the background a whole bunch of your systems are being operated in a TNO mode where Google Drive is the is the back-end storage provider to something, you know, which is more of the, the toolkit pro, uh, profile where, you know, you've chosen these components yourself. So um, at this point, I have a tentative list. What I, what I want people to do is drop a note in Security Now feedback for next week's episode. We'll do a Q&A next week. Um, on my list, uh, and this is in this week's show notes, so someone could scan it, or if you just hear me not read something that you're passionate about, let me know. Uh, you can tweet it to me uh, at SGGRC, of course, or go to grc.com slash feedback, in order to get a, a web form and just drop me a note. So I know about Air Backup, Amazon S3, as I mentioned, ARC, ARQ Backup that we talked about once before. I believe that's still Mac only, but I haven't looked recently. Also, BitCasa, Boxcryptor, I'm, really looks good to me also. Uh, there's Backblaze, there's Cloudberry, CrashPlan, Duplicati, Philosync, of course, good old Jungle Disk, Mega, then Microsoft's OneDrive. Uh, there's a system called Tesserit, which looks very nice also. Spider Oak, we've talked about, and we'll, we'll look at them again. Sync.com, SyncThing.net, TarSnap, uh, that's Colin Percival's uh, solution. Uh, he of course is famous for you for the development of Script, which is the is the PBK uh, DF2, the password based key derivative 
function that I'm using in Squirrel in order to create very, very strong, really impossible to crack passwords. There's something called United, spelled Y-O-U-N-I-T-E-D. Uh, Vivio, V-I-I, or Vivo, I guess, V-I-I-V-O. I think that's from the the Zip folks. And then Wuala is a, also very popular. And Zools, Z-O-O-L-Z.com. Those are all the ones that I've, a list I've been maintaining as People have mentioned them. I've added them. I, I'm no doubt I've missed some. Let me know. And then my plan is to uh, to to tackle probably one a week, maybe two a week. We'll just sort of we'll you know we'll we'll see uh, how much time I have and and how big the the end of how much there is to say about each of these. But essentially, I want to build this. The goal is to build a comprehensive publicly accessible spreadsheet it's already up it's uh since this is called cloud storage solutions css i created a bitly link because this is a google spreadsheet so it's bit.ly slash sn hyphen css all lowercase sn hyphen css so for security now hyphen cloud storage solutions that that will end up being fully populated with a complete breakdown of all of these services, uh, what thing, you know, how they operate, uh, how they compare with each other, what the pricing is and so forth. And I imagine we'll just make, once that's established, we'll add to it as new things come along. We will, you know, I'm sure people will, will point out mistakes or changes. Uh, we'll fix those and we'll have like one nice reference for the, the state of the industry in cloud storage solutions now steve the the era of having a dedicated cloud solution like the one that rules them all that's kind of over right i mean we 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 talked about that a lot early on that oh well uh dropbox is going to be defeated by by google drive and google drive is competing with with OneDrive, or now uh you know SkyDrive as it used to be that's kind of going away. It seems as if people are starting to understand that you can choose different cloud providers for different things. Like, for yes. example, my, my personal setup uses a few Synology drives. It uses an IOSafe drive, which is actually a Synology NAS box inside of a fireproof safe, um, so that I could do redundant storage on the same campus with one box that's almost sure to survive any disaster. Plus, right. it automatically syncs to Amazon Glacier. So even yes. though that's that's not that's not fast, it does store a lot and it does it over time. Uh, and then yep. I have my less secure files, the files I really don't care about, get put onto OneDrive so that I have immediate access to them. And it's you yep. really kind of custom format your storage setup according to the needs of space, the needs of speed, and the needs of security. Right? I mean, you're not going to find one vendor that does it all great, but. If you could break down what you need, then you get to choose the vendors that work best. Yes, and that and that's exactly what I mean when I talk about a toolkit approach. I think that's the approach that makes sense for for this podcast listeners. Um, you know, I mean, every you know a- anyone can inst- can install. Um, uh, <laughs> I'm looking at my list and I'm not seeing it. Uh, uh, Carbonate. 
<laughs> carbonite. Thank you. Yeah, because you're right. I didn't have. I didn't have. Not, it's not have in it on the list here. <laughs> Anyone can install carbonite and just have that problem solved. But you know, th- th- in fact, you've probably seen this. I don't remember the name of the service. There's even one which which deliberately takes advantage of multiple cloud providers' free tier plans and and spread your storage across all these different providers' free packages so that you end up with an aggregate large amount of storage being underneath the paid level for each of them and ending up with something free. That's, you know, not really the approach I would take. It's I a little think we more call that like cheapo disc. It's, <laughs> it's, sort of, it's sort of like raid zero where if, you know, where, where you're really, you've got the, you know, no redundancy at all. And if, if you know, if anything died, you're in trouble. So yeah. yeah. Cheapo uh, disc. The, another interesting point to bring up is uh, I get way too many people who think that cloud storage is their backup. It, and I always tell them, look, it can be one of your backups, but yep. you can't just assume that it's always going to be there. I mean, we, we don't have to reach back very far to see a real case scenario. Uh, do you remember Matt Honan, who had a little issue oh. with his, 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 oh, uh, yeah. his iPad? That, oh, that yeah. can absolutely can happen, where, where you have one device that issues a delete command across all the sync boxes, and next thing you know, it's all gone. Uh, well, and remember too. I mean that we're we're relying on these cloud storage providers to be there, for example. But you know they could be hit by a denial of service attack, and you know, and and you have no connectivity to them at a certain time, or you know, an earthquake could happen and take out someone's data center. So so. The idea being, yes, that's a good backup, but exactly as you say, you you absolutely don't want to count on them for sure. You want to use them as, you know, probably safe, but not, you know, not life, you know, not not mission critical. Matt Work in the chat room uh, has a good uh, an acronym for it. He's calling it RAKE. A redundant array of independent clouds. I think I guess you could do it that way as long as long as there was a way to break the sync at some point so that a, a deletion in one place doesn't necessarily destroy the archive everywhere else. I, I guess I, I could take that. Yeah, I think, you know, I guess my role in this, because, you know, anyone could put together a big matrix of features. That's not a hard thing to do. You look at web pages and, you know, with a critical eye. But when I looked really carefully before we found mistakes in the crypto. We found things that were not done correctly. And, you know, and, you know, that's what people want from me is, okay, yeah. So they're saying they're not storing my keys. Well, okay, are they? Or how does that work? You know, and so it, it you know, what interests me is the low level plumbing of this, the, the actual crypto technology um, and so what I hope to surface on this spreadsheet is, you know, that I've looked at it. This is how, you know, we'll do a podcast on it. This is how it works. And then we'll capture that for for a future comparison. Yeah. Yeah. Now, if people want to participate, they just go to the feedback page on GRC and uh, let you know what they're looking for. Uh, let, let, right. they, you want to hear from the audience. You want to hear from the people who are actually using this in the wild. What, what do you need out of a backup solution? What do you need out of cloud solution? And uh, you know, what, 
what who are you looking at? Who who do you use on a daily basis? Right. I, I I've had people say, hey, you know, I'm getting, you know, I'm using Duplicati. Are they secure? So uh, I imagine next week's Q and A because I know this is a topic of huge interest. I mean, it's. I would say cloud storage is has become you know a major factor in what the internet is offering today. So I, I'm I want to solicit input to sort of get this thing launched, and that'll that'll help you know give me some direction. And then I imagine. Uh, Obviously, we will take breaks when major security events happen. But I, I hope to just move through this and 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 really cover this territory, so that by the time we're done, people, for example, who want to take take a toolkit approach, will be able to say, "Ah, this is the one I want to use because," and you know, they'll know why they're choosing the one that they're choosing. You know, Steve, one of these days you're going to choose a project that's simple, uh, combining <laughs> lo- looking through all cloud storage providers to find the one or the few. Uh, that's, that's a little ambitious. But you know what? We don't expect anything less. Steve Gibson well, is at GRC.com. That's the place that you'll find SpinRight. Also, uh, where you'll find links over to Shields Up, the essentials if you're going to live in a digital world. It's the world's greatest maintenance and recovery utility set. Now, you also find 16 kilobit versions of this podcast transcript and, of course, the tremendous, the talented, the very active forums over at GRC.com in addition to information about security and, of course, Squirrel. You'll also find uh, the forums uh, aside from the feedback page where you will be able to contribute to Steve's cloud solution project. Now, if you have a question, you can submit them at grc.com slash feedback. That's the same form that you're going to use to suggest elements of Steve's cloud provider project. And maybe your question will be picked up for one of the Q&A sessions of a future episode of Security Now. You can also find all of the versions of Security Now here at Twit at the Twit show note page for Security Now at twit.tv slash sn and wherever fine podcasts are aggregated. You can also use our apps or watch us live. We gather every Tuesday, 1 Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern, 2000 UTC at live.twit.tv. I'm Father Robert Balliser in for Leo Laporte. Steve Gibson, thank you very much. Thanks so much. This was great. We'll see you next week on Security Now. Security.